Uh, at this time, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to start today in verse 8. Our focus really begins in verse 9. For context, we're going to re- begin reading at verse 8. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's ask the Lord's blessing now over his word. Father God, I thank you so much that you have given us your word, your wisdom, so that we might live in your way. And God, I ask that today as we come before you that you would clarify for us what exactly we are called to do as a body, as a congregation, but also as individuals, how we are to worship you faithfully and well. God, I pray that we would exemplify what it looks like to be submissive to you. Both men and women would lay down our pride, humble ourselves, and follow you according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before we dive directly into the exegesis of this text, I think it's important that we take care of a few preliminary concerns or misconceptions in three specific areas, emotional, cultural, and spiritual. Let's begin by addressing a few emotional responses to what I just read. Perhaps some of you felt a strong sense of unease as the word was being read a few moments ago, and perhaps you feel that this passage itself is putting women down, or limiting their potential, or hindering them from rightful equality. Perhaps you're already gearing up your inner lawyer, and you're just ready with a response for why a woman can do anything that a man can do. Now, if that is the case, I want your heart to be at ease. Now, remember, this passage is about proper worship. That's displayed throughout the passage in two distinct ways. It talks about women's apparel and women's authority within the body of Christ. This passage is not about women's rights. It's not about whether or not a woman should vote or run for public office or be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And these verses do not suggest in any way that women are going to stand before the throne of God as a second-class citizen. I was just reading earlier this week a book about apologetics uh, when we speak to Muslims, and one of the things that it took note of was that, according to the Quran, It requires two women to be equal to a man before God. That's not true in Christianity. We don't believe that. 1 Timothy is not in any way arguing that women should be the recipients of any kind of abuse or brutality. And when the scripture is followed appropriately, that's when women are most honored and respected and able to worship God rightly. Which brings us to the arena of culture. As you've probably already noted, the Bible is wildly out of step with our modern American culture. Or if I can state it in the proper order, our modern American culture has rejected God's righteous standards. Here are just a few things that our culture would reject that are undeniably taught in Scripture, particularly right here in 1 Timothy. I will run through this very rapidly and not land on them for a long time, but please know we could talk about these things extensively and they would still be true. 
First, there are only two genders. When you sign up for Facebook, they give you 58 options. You are male or you are female. The Bible is clear. Men and women have different roles. The world does not like to accept that. But according to the Bible, men and women function differently in different spheres of society. We have different roles in marriage. We have different roles in terms of raising children. We have different roles within the church. The world, to its own detriment, is seeking to eliminate any distinctions between male and female. But the text is clear that God has outlined certain responsibilities within the church for certain genders. Thirdly, Paul identifies... Uh, Paul's identity, according to our culture, undermines his relevance. Modern philosophy teaches us that the only person who can speak to an issue is someone within the group in question. For example, they would argue in our modern society that it is impossible for you, for example, to speak or have an opinion about homosexual marriage unless you are homosexual yourself or unless you agree with those who are. Why? Because you do not identify with them or as them, and therefore cannot relate or speak with intelligence to their situation. This is a very false and unhelpful development in modern discourse. You do not have to be part of a group to speak intelligibly about a group. So when people look at this in the modern world, they say, Paul does not have the right to an opinion here. He does not get to say what women wear or how they dress or whether or not they can wear jewelry. He does not get to say whether or not a woman has the ability to teach within the church because he is not a woman. What these people fail to acknowledge is that Paul is not speaking out of his own experience or his own will. Even though their understanding of the ability to communicate to issues only being within the group is faulty, even if they were right about that, he is writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is therefore communicating not his own perspectives or his own will, but God's perspectives and God's will. But there are also spiritual prerequisites that we need to get in line here as we approach this passage or ones like this one. This passage is a call to function within the church in such a way that we please the Lord. This is about worship. As we saw last Sunday in verse 8, It sets a target on men, at least men in that church, how they had a tendency towards quarreling and disunity. Now, in this part of the chapter, we're seeing that God is addressing the heart of women in the church by correcting a few very specific forms of sin that were evident in the life of their body. Now, ladies, as I touch on a few of these issues today, I would ask that you genuinely ask the Holy Spirit that he would search your heart to know whether there are any ways that you fall short of these commands. And men, I want to say to you, this is not a sermon to kick back and relax and look at the lady next to you and say, this is yours, you're up. No, this is a time for you to listen and hear and grow. Men, there are things in this passage I want you to consider, I want you to learn from, as we work not only on what it says towards women, but how this affects you. Everything that happens to women in this community affects the men. If you are married, your wife should not simply feel loved by you when she dresses up or when she makes herself fancy. She should feel your attraction and your love at all times. And single men, when you are searching for a wife, if you are merely looking at the outward appearance, you're doing both yourself and your potential spouse a great disservice. By prioritizing appearance, men encourage the exact kind of behavior that the Lord rejects in this passage. 
And in regards to authority, men, this is not just a statement that women are not to lead and teach in the church. It is a statement that men are supposed to. That means that we must step up. These words are about examining and aiming primarily at women, but they require that men grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and step up as leaders. Because men, if we fail to grow, if we fail to step up and lead, this church will shrivel and it will die. Now, with all that in mind, let's take this passage line by line. And what we're going to do, instead of just three points of application or anything like that, we're just going to walk through each and every word and try to understand what each verse means at a time. We're going to begin here in verse 9. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Worship matters. God cares deeply about how we act when we gather. And he cares about what our hearts are like as we come together for worship. And in this case, the outward appearance of these women was improper for those who profess godliness. In particular, Paul highlights three forms of immodesty here that reveal a lack of self-control were being displayed in these women. He starts with braided hair. Now, what does he mean? If you want to offend a woman, a woman, you speak about their hair, right? Like he is not interested here in limiting his offense. Here he goes right after the hair. And he says, what about you who are braiding your hair in this way? Well, is it wrong for any, like I'm just, you know, wondering if there's any ladies here who are like hiding their braid under a hat right now. Is it wrong for you to do that? In order to answer that, I want you to compare right now this passage here, this statement about braided hair, with the other two things that he lists. Namely, gold and pearl jewelry, and costly, extravagant attire. If you put these three things together, they have something in common, and that is lavish expense. See, when he talks about braided hair, he's probably referring to something quite specific that was common in this place in this time. In those days, when a wealthy woman would get her hair braided for a special event, they would have a part of their wealth literally braided into their hair. Shells, coins, Expensive jewelry, all of that would be intricately woven into a pattern to draw maximum attention to that woman. Similarly, just like it can today, jewelry can be worn in a way to gain attention or to catch somebody's eye. And lastly, he mentions costly attire. Now, I know that I've mentioned this before, but I think it's just something we are oblivious to. When we buy a shirt for $11... You don't realize that this is unusual in human history. When you buy clothing, you buy it at a very low cost because of the amazing way that we have created a supply chain that can produce things at low costs. In those days, clothing was incredibly expensive, especially fancy clothing, especially women's fancy clothing. In fact, I was reading in various scholars and various commentaries, and they range from saying these dresses or fancy clothing that women would wear would range from one year's wages to four years wages for the common person for one outfit. And he says, when you come in, why are you wearing this costly attire? You're dressing up with something that costs more than a modern day wedding gown every Sunday. Why are you doing this? 
So what exactly is the problem here? Is Paul saying that we should not dress up for church? Does he say that we should be sloppy when we arrive? Clearly that's not his point, and we know that that's not his point because he explicitly says at the beginning of the verse that when we gather, we are to wear respectable attire. So then, how do we draw the line here? Where do we go from being extravagant to being worshipful? Well, let me give you three guidelines, and these are true not only for women but also for men as we approach this concept of modesty as we gather together worshipfully. Now, remember, they didn't have a church building. This is whenever they gathered, whenever you are together, what are you to consider in relation to how other people are going to observe you, and in particular, your own heart? Three things. First, be about giving honor, not receiving honor. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, if you are dressing up for a gathering with the intention of gaining honor, gaining attention, rather than humbly seeking to show others honor and brotherly love, well, then you're doing it wrong. It seems that these women who were there were there because they wanted to have everyone's eyes on them. Secondly, be about godliness, not seductiveness. As we make our way through this book, you're going to see that it seems that some of the women have made a very big mess of their own lives and of the church. Here are just a couple of examples. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, later in this same book, verses 11 through 12, it says, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. And later on in that same chapter, verse 15, he says, some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. One thing to note about this society in this time, men often got married when they were a little older than we do on average, and women got married when they were younger than our society is comfortable with in this day. So usually the men were 15 to 20 years older than the women that they married. And in those days, in this period of time, the average life expectancy for a man was about 44 years old. Therefore, many young women were widowed when they were still in their early or mid-20s. And here he says of these women, look, these women are still able to get married. These women are in marriage age. Yet, when he speaks about this, he's saying they're going out and they are sinning in such a way that he declares that they have turned away to follow Satan. We also see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the requirements of pastoral ministry that he underlines is that pastors would be a one-woman man. Now, this might be a direct rebuke of some of the men in the church who were falling into sin with these women. Now, Paul argues that what women should be adorning themselves with is not their outward apparel, but with character that reflects God himself. He highlights good works that are in line with a profession of worship. Now, stick around with us for a few months, because when we get to chapter 5, he actually drills down quite a bit onto what exactly these good works are going to look like. But whatever you wear, however you do your hair, do so in a way that accords with worship. Which brings us now to our third guideline of modesty, which is this. Be about turning people's eyes to Jesus, not to yourself. 
If anyone, male or female, comes to church with the goal of gaining attention or reputation, or if they want to catch somebody's eye or gain someone's favor, then they are at church for the wrong reason. As a Christian, every single moment of our lives is to point to Christ. Even on your wedding day, the best thing that you can do is not draw all attention to yourself. Now, I know that every bride is told on their wedding, this day is your day. It's all about you. Well, first of all, it's actually all about the two of you in some sense. But in a greater way, it's actually all about God and what God is doing. Consider what Jesus himself said. What God has joined together, let no man rend asunder. God is doing something unique and special at every wedding. He is, in a mysterious way, joining two people together. God is at work in that ceremony. Every true wedding that has ever occurred is actually a picture of the gospel itself. It is about Christ. And so when you have any day, even the most special day in your life, then on those times you are still supposed to be reflecting the attention, not to yourself, but to Christ. Every day is about him. And the best thing that you can do is display at every celebration a form of worship. This is not about you. It's about him. But I know the response of some people that they might have in their minds. What about men or women who are not yet married? They want to get married. They want to catch somebody's eye. They, they want somebody to fall in love with them. How are they supposed to do that if they're not purposefully making themselves attractive? Well, please note, Paul never says anything against making yourself attractive. He does not say just, you know, mess up your hair when you come into church and make yourself look as slovenly as possible. No, he does not say that. Rather, he says to adorn yourselves with good deeds. Young men and young women, I want you to know that the people that you want to be attracted to you are the ones who are attracted to more than your hair and your clothing. Ladies, if a man is just attracted to you because of how you dress or how you do your hair, that is a very shallow man and he is unworthy of your attention. And there is no more attractive feature to a mature Christian than a godly life of a possible spouse. So live a godly life filled with good works, and by God's grace, he will open the door for you. So let's seek to be a church that exemplifies modesty. Just to recap those things, be about giving honor, not receiving honor. Be about godliness, not seductiveness. And be about turning people's eyes to Jesus and not to yourselves. So now we turn to the question of authority that begins in verse 11. It reads, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to, or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. few things to know scientifically. According to the American Journal of Audology, men's voices on average are about 155 hertz while women's voices average 255 hertz. Now, you don't really need to know what hertz are. All you need to know is that women have about 100 more of them on average than men. Women also tend to speak more than men. According to research done by the University of Maryland, men average about 7,000 words per day, while women average about 20,000 words per day. That's nearly triple. So scientifically speaking, women on average are both louder and more talkative than men. And I have a sneaking suspicion that these traits are not things that are just designed as part of our modern culture. I think these things have actually held true since the beginning of time, though there is no way to actually prove that. But by saying that, I am saying that I believe it's actually part of God's good design. 
He designed men and women to be different, and that's actually a good thing. But is this actually what Paul is getting at here? Is he just saying, look, these ladies are just chattering all the time, and they just need to chill out? Is he telling women that they need to just bring this into balance with the level of men's speech or communication or volume? Is he telling women that they need to simply quiet down when they come to church? Or even more extremely, is he demanding their silence when they gather? Well, simply, the answer is no. But in order to understand this, we need to grasp exactly how Paul is using the word quiet here in this book. If you have your Bible open, I want you to jump back up to to verse 2 for a moment. Paul writes that they are to pray in such a way that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Here, notice that quiet lives are paralleled with godliness and dignity. And also notice that this command is for men and women alike earlier in the chapter. It is not a call to silence Rather, when he uses the term quiet, it is a call to sober-minded obedience. It means to weigh out our words before we speak. It means to use our attitude and our demeanor and our facial expressions and our volume and our words in such a way that they honor the Lord. But how exactly is it that Paul is telling them to live a quiet life in the church? What does that look like specifically for women in our context? In verse 12, he makes clear that for a woman to live this kind of godly and holy life means that within the church, she will not teach or have authority over men. And Paul could have just left it there without adding any more commentary. He could have just said, look, women are not to be pastors in the church. Women are not to to be shepherds. They're not to uh, teach or preach or have authority. And just end the sentence. And if that were the case, we would still obey. However, Paul actually continues his argument, and he lovingly explains why these things continue to hold true. And I want you to notice notice that these arguments that are made in this command are separate from the command that was made earlier. Modesty requires different things from different cultures. In that culture, braided hair was becoming a stumbling block because of what it signified. That is likely not true in our culture today. But the argument against a woman operating in authority within the body of Christ, these are not grounded in cultural cultural mores or some kind of changing fashions. Paul grounds this command in two unchangeable historical facts. It would be great if you could see them with your own eyes. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, look to verses 13 and 14. There it says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul argues both by the order of creation and by order of the fall that Adam was created first and that Eve sinned first. There is no line of argumentation that could possibly change these two historical facts. Now, some of you were taking part in the Bible study at my home that was going on on Tuesday nights. I hope that you will rejoin us when we gather back together for those. Uh, as we've been gathering, we've been making our way slowly through the book of Acts. And when I, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Genesis. And when I say slowly, I mean that we have had seven studies so far, I think, and we are now in the middle of chapter two. So we are moving really slowly, trying to dig in deeply to what the word says. And in those studies, one of the things that we have taken into consideration is the order of creation. 
Each day, God would create something, and then he would look at his creation, and he would see that it was good. And on the sixth day, God created Adam, and then he allowed Adam to experience life for a time without a helper fit for him. But after making Adam, that little phrase is not repeated. It does not say, God saw that it was good. Instead, we see that for the very first time, God says something was not good. This is very important because sin has not yet entered the world, yet God says something is not good. It was not good because at that time it was still an incomplete creation. What was the first thing that was not good? Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And it was only after creating woman that God looked at his creation, and then the phrase is repeated, except this time a word is added, and he says, and he saw that it was very good. God's creation is now complete, and it is very good. This creation order does not undermine the fact that they were both made in the image of God. It does not undermine the fact that they were both responsible for their own sin. It does, however, underscore the reality that God's order in creation was purposeful. It was not an accident that Adam was made before Eve, long enough that he would even recognize that there was a gaping hole in his existence without her. No other creatures had this kind of time dilation between the male and female being brought into existence. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in accordance with his apostolic authority, declares that this order of creation was always designed to be instructive to our practice in the church. Now, you might look back and say, I just don't see how he makes that connection. I don't see how that order of creation equals men in authority in the church. Well, I have to tell you, part of what it looks like in the New Testament for the apostles to interpret the Old Testament, there are times when it's difficult for us to see exactly how they come to that conclusion. The only way they can is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For example, when it talks about paying your pastor, he quotes from the Old Testament about not muzzling the ox when it treads out the grain. Of course, I realize he's comparing pastors like myself to an ox, But also, in that passage, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read it, you will see that what is he talking about in those passages? He's talking about an actual ox and an actual muzzle. Yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament, he is able to interpret that for us and reveal to us there was a mysterious meaning hidden under it the whole time. Or a more famous example, that that we've already talked about today, that of marriage. Every marriage from the beginning of time has been about Christ and the church according to Ephesians 5. But that mystery was not revealed to us until God gave that to us through the apostles. So here, he is revealing to us this creation order has always been a way for God to reveal the design of life and its operations in the church. But not only is the creation order highlighted, Paul also zooms in on the fact that it was Eve who first sinned in the garden. I found Andreas Kostenberger's commentary on this particularly helpful in describing this well-known event. He writes, and it should be here for you, the role reversal had been complete. Rather than God being in authority over man, who was in authority over the woman, who were in authority over the animal world, including the serpent, the pattern prevailing at the fall was the exact opposite. The serpent tempted and deceived the woman, who exerted leadership over the man. 
and both rebelled against God and transgressed His command. End quote. Well said. The two seminal moments in all of human history are the fall and the cross of Christ. And the reason the cross was necessary was the fall occurred. Eve set into motion every other sin that would ever be committed. Adam followed, as did every human that was ever born from their union. And as we move now into chapter 3 next week, this notion of male leadership in the church is reiterated and it is emphasized in very clear ways. First of all, all of the pronouns when speaking about pastors here are masculine. For example, he says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The masculine pronoun is then repeated in usage seven times describing those who can be elders. As already mentioned this morning, pastors are to be the husband of one wife. This is something that can only be said of men, not that a wife should be the wife of one wife, right? And finally, it requires that he rules over his household well. That position of authority in the home, as we see throughout Scripture, is to be occupied by the man that God has set over the family. So, what does this look like in the church? How is this operation in place at Gateway? Well, simply put, how we put this into practice is by opening every avenue for women to use their gifts in any and every ministry that is biblically available. It means not neglecting teaching and instructing women as equal members of the body, as some religions do, where only men can have religious instruction. It means that we do not have women shepherding the flock or preaching from the pulpit, but we do have women pray and share their testimonies and teach the children and run the nursery school and give the announcements and publicly read the scripture and worship with the music team and all sorts of various other ministries where they are called to serve and use their gifts. It would be a very lopsided and unhealthy church if only men were gathering and serving. Ladies, God has gifted each of you for ministry in his service. So I encourage you, rise up, develop your gifts so that you can serve him well. Which brings us now to the final and most difficult portion of this text today. If you have your own Bibles, please look at this verse with me, verse 15. It reads, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And one of the best ways to know what something is is first by knocking away some of the things that it is not. Now, let's first consider uh, one thing here about this passage that is false. We know that this does not mean a reference to salvation from sin and hell. How do we know that? Because the author, the same author, writes in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Or we can include in here, not as a result of childbearing, so that no woman can boast. It is not of works that you are saved. So when it talks about salvation, this is almost certainly not a reference to salvation from hell and damnation. There's one exception that I'll get to later on where it may mean that, and I'll explain why. So here, being saved through childbearing, I, I think it's difficult to see it as a translation of salvation from hell or sin. Rather, I want you to know that this word where it is said saved or salvation in your translation, it is used in many ways in the New Testament. Whenever somebody is healed by Jesus, it is the same word that they were healed. The word is sozo. 
It's where we get our word salvation from. It is the same word that is used to restore or to set free or to deliver or to preserve or to rescue someone. So with those clarifications in mind, I have to be honest, I am still not 100% sure what this means. Actually, scratch that, I am absolutely baffled by what this means. So what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to give you four possibilities out of the more than 40 that I read about this week. Uh, And I want to give you just a few that are probably the most likely accurate answers to the question, what in the world does this verse mean? Some argue that this means that the reputation of Eve's sin is going to be wiped away by godly living, and in particular, the raising of children. For example, John MacArthur writes, Paul teaches here that although a woman precipitated the fall and women bear that responsibility, yet they may be preserved from that stigma through childbearing. The rescue, the delivery, the freeing of women from the stigma of having led the race into sin happens when they bring up a righteous seed. In other words, this passage could be interpreted as, yet women's reputational stigma may be wiped away through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I struggle with this interpretation for a few reasons, mainly because I don't think that it's God's plan for all women to get married, nor do I think that it's God's plan that all married women will have children, nor do I think that all women bear the burden and stigma of sin and that men do not, and I have a scriptural argument for each of those things that I could discuss with you more as time permits. So although this does seem to be one of the most popular views, I don't land here myself. Another view is that this is a reference to the continuation of the human species, which can only be brought about by women having children. In our world today, this is not a small issue. Many women do not have their children. They abort them instead of faithfully bringing them into the world. And this perspective would interpret the passage to read something like this. Yet, humanity will continue through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, it's an argument that even though Eve did sin and bring the curse of death into the world, yet the human species can continue to exist through childbearing. However, the problem with this argument is that even women who do not continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control still have babies. The population of the planet is not hindered in places that have never heard the gospel. Even the wicked procreate. So I have serious doubts about this being the answer to the question, what does this mean? Perhaps the viewpoint that is most common in Reformed circles is John Calvin's argument that this is actually a reference to the curse that came down on Eve. The first half of God's curse towards Eve is found in Genesis 3.16, which says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, I know any of you women who have had children, you can't imagine childbirth without pain. But notice, that is part of the curse. So in this interpretation, you could read the text, yet... She will be preserved through the curse of pain that comes from childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it does make sense, I think, that Paul would speak of Eve's sin and immediately afterwards connect that to the punishment that came from that sin. And I also know that I've seen my wife, who is one of the strongest people I've ever met, and I've also seen my children being born, and I know that even the strongest of women suffer immensely because of the curse of sin. Now, in this understanding, the argument is that salvation is a reference not to salvation in the present, but future salvation as we enter into heaven. The problem is 
There is no clear line connecting childbearing to holiness, nor is there an explanation of how experiencing the greatest extent of the curse in this life somehow allows you to experience salvation in the next. One final possible explanation comes from John Stott, who argues that bearing of a child here is a reference exclusively to the, the birth of Jesus. If this is the case, then the passage could be understood to read something like this. Yet women will be saved through the birth of the Christ child if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, the big challenge here, in my opinion, is the pronouns. The text says, she will be saved, probably still a reference to Eve, if they continue. In other words, the ones who will continue are not a singular entity. Therefore, I do not know that John Stott could be right here when he says, Mary is the they that will continue and produce a child, Jesus. The pronouns just don't line up. Mary, nowhere else in the entire Bible, is referred to as they, nor is any singular individual ever referred to in that way in the Scripture. So, to be honest, of these four options, one of them is probably correct. But I see holes in each one of them. And with all of the other things that I have read, I can't quite put my finger on it. So, if any of you are wiser and more knowledgeable in the Scripture and know the answer to what this means, please share it with me, and I will update the church if I come to a solid conclusion. But for now, I will simply say, to me, this is mysterious. This is a challenging text, and there are some times I will have to stand here and tell you, I just don't know, and this is one of those times. But what I do know is this. Regardless of what verse 15 means, regardless of which interpretation is accurate, or even if all of the ones I've offered are inaccurate, there is still a solid truth that we land on today. And that is that men and women can be saved, and we are saved by grace, through faith, in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. May He receive all of the glory in our lives. May He receive all of the worship in the way that we act, the way that we dress, the way that we gather, the way that we pray, the way that our hearts reflect the attitude of Christ-like servitude. May the way that we order our church leadership and the way that we dress and the way that we come together and worship Him be pleasing to Him always. And may our hearts be committed to Him completely. Now to that end, I ask that we pray that He would do these things in our congregation and in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for even the most difficult of texts. I thank You that You have given it for our sanctification, for our glorification, and that we might someday see You face to face. And Lord, I pray that when we do, we will have no more questions. But God, I pray that today, if there was anyone who was pricked in their heart, if there was anyone who was misunderstanding, if there was anyone who was coming to this text with a very different perspective about what it means, Lord, I pray that you would help us to come together and agree in the Lord. And I pray that in this church we would reflect the Christ-like presentation of what it looks like for men to stand and lead and reflect the position to which you have created them for, that they would guide and shepherd and guard. Lord, I pray for those men in the church who are still young in the faith or weak in the faith, that you would grow them to be strong, that they might stand and lead their own families and even lead in various ways in the church. And I pray, Lord, for the women in this church, that they would be strengthened and that they would grow and that they would be able to serve in every way that you have gifted them to serve so that they might benefit this body of Christ. And all this we pray so that Jesus' name might be lifted high. Amen.